going to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, the message that we'll be speaking on entitled, Looking to God. We're going to actually be in two passages of Scripture, Luke 11 and then Luke 18. For those of you who watch football on Monday evenings, professional football has a Monday evening game, and many years ago during a Monday night football game between the Chicago Bears and the New York Giants, one of the announcers observed that Walter Payton, the Chicago Bears' great running back, had accumulated over nine miles in career rushing yardage. The other announcer remarked, quote, yeah, and that's with someone knocking him down every 4.6 yards. Even when it comes to football, the best running backs get knocked down, but what makes them the best is that they get back up, and the success key for them is to get up, run again. The key is to be persistent. Came across in a Christian magazine a small cartoon that was featured that shows a little fellow kneeling down beside his bed for bedtime prayer, and he says with some measure of disgust, quote, Dear God, Uncle Jim still doesn't have a job. Sis still doesn't have a date for the social. Grandma is still feeling sick. And I'm tired of praying for this family and not getting results. (laughs) No doubt each of us has probably felt like quitting at some point in one matter or another. And each of us has probably felt like giving up on seeing answers to prayer. Probably more than a few of us sitting here today have actually stopped praying, maybe not all together, but have quit praying for certain things that once upon a time God had laid on our hearts. There are three parables in Luke's gospel that have as their focus teaching concerning prayer. And that is, at the heart of it, their central message. But they're really not so much about prayer is about the God to whom we pray and the attitudes you and I should have when we do pray. And because God is eager and because God is so desirous to assist and to forgive us, they're really parables then of encouragement. And they offer a message that we started in a sense when we talked about a pattern for prayer. And we're going to take that today and continue on then in the parables that deal with it and bring all three. This will be our last study, as it were, on the parables of prayer. But they have a message, and that is that prayer works. Therefore, you and I ought to pray and pray always. But when we do pray, we ought to pray with the right heart. And so I'm going to invite you to join me, please, as we study our way through, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 11 of Luke's Gospel. 11 and beginning in verse 5. And if you remember, we talked about the matter that began. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And as he speaks on prayer there, he tells us, The lesson that he offered them was the pattern for prayer. We sometimes know it, and sometimes groups pray the Lord's Prayer. As well as on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus used that same pattern and taught on a different occasion how to pray. Praying then in a style that goes, that begins, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. 
And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass sin against us. And lead us not, let us not be led into temptation. So he teaches them how they ought to pray. And then he offers a parable following that in Luke's gospel. This first parable we're entitling the friend at midnight. This friend at midnight is found in verses 5 through 8, and it talks to us and offers us a message about the certainty of prayer. And he said to them this, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Don't bother. Do not bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. When Jesus begins to tell them this story, as in many of the parables, they come from everyday occurrences that these people lived through in their everyday experience. And everyone understood. It was customary traveler would be traveling and arrive, what would anybody be doing arriving at a home at the 11 o'clock hour near midnight? When folks would travel oftentimes in Jesus' day, because of the heat of the day as well, they traveled well on into the dark hours. Was cooler, easier to travel? We know that. That's how Mary and Joseph traveled. Tired, hungry, looking for hospitality. You didn't pull into a Four Points by Sheraton, a Weston, Hilton Garden Inn, a Hampton. They didn't have those things. They had some inns, relatively few in the day. But there were few public accommodations. So the emphasis among the Jews was on hospitality. And it was incumbent upon a Jew to take a friend in. And so someone would arrive at your home, you would welcome them in, and then what the custom was, you would offer them a meal. Meal often would consist of perhaps bread. Three loaves was customary for a meal. In this case, a friend arrives at another friend's home. It's late in the day. The host does not have any food to offer his guest. So what he does, because oftentimes what they did, they had courtyards between the homes. Sometimes they even shared a common oven between numerous homes or between friends in the area, and they would have a a large bake oven outside. Knowing then that someone had baked that day, the host goes to that friend's home, knocks on the door. The family perhaps sleeping, They may be sleeping in a smaller home or a larger home, even on the second floor, but a common bedroom where maybe the parents were separated from the children by simply a curtain that would hang down from the ceiling, therefore offering, as it were, two rooms, but it's simply one large room. And as the knocking comes to the door, the host is saying, I cannot get up, hearing the knocking outside. It'll wake up my family. And so he does not want to get up. He actually turns down, doesn't even, as he responds, he says, do not bother me. He doesn't call him friend the way the others said. The door is shut. My children and I are in bed. I cannot get up. 
And so the question is asked, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is a friend, yet because of his persistence, the word persistence, actually the Greek word there is the word shamelessness. He will get up and give him as much as he needs. The host is going to get his food because this man, because he stays there and is not ashamed to come at the midnight hour, and he's willing to do that, the parable then addresses the implied question, will God respond to prayer? And the argument then that's in this parable is this, if among humans a request is granted even when or because it is rude, how much more? Keep that how much moreness in mind, because when these parables make a contrast, what Jesus is driving home to his hearers is, how much more will your heavenly Father respond to your requests? In other words, the parable is teaching the certainty of a God who hears our prayers and who responds. And so we can pray with confidence, a certainty in a God who hears prayers and responds. Jesus prayed. Prayer works. Verse 9, then he will go on to talk about prayer's frequency or its intensity. For he says, and notice the three terms as they rise in the scale of ascendancy and intensity. He says in verse 9, so I say to you, ask, or literally keep asking. Keep on asking. Make it your habit to ask. Pray without ceasing, as it were, Paul would say, which implies a humility consciousness of a need. You ask because you know you can't meet that, and so you are looking to someone else, and you are asking continually. Ask, and it will be given you. Seek. Keep on seeking. Literally, then, the idea of this habit of seeking involves asking plus acting, and you will find. Knock. And again, keep on knocking, which involves asking, acting, plus persevering, and it will be open to you. Prayer then, we see its fervency. We see how it receives an answer in verse 10. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. God promises that if you pray this way, it will be answered. By the way, keep two truths in mind. Number one is this. An answer is certain, he says. There's no such thing as unanswered prayer. You have not because you what? Ask not, James would write. Therefore, keep on praying until an answer comes. God is not asleep. The answer may not be what you anticipate, though. That's the second truth. may not be what you want. Sometimes we don't receive the desires that we feel we need, and James 4, 3 says, you ask that you may consume it upon our own desires or passions. God knows better. It may not be what we want, and sometimes it may not be when we want it. The Jews had prayed for 490 years when they were in captivity and bondage in Egypt. Generation upon generation, and God says, I was listening to those prayers. We can't just pray for anything, and if we're persistent, get it. My mom talks about it, but I used to do it because as a youngster in grade school, I believed it, that if I wanted something bad enough, I'll just keep pestering. 
persisting till I got it. And by the way, grocery stores and other places are set up that way. You take those four-year-olds, five-year-olds in those carts, it's just at eye level. It starts when you come in, and by the time you get so tired of the annoying, the nagging, the persistency of the young people, we succumb, see? My folks were wiser than that. I didn't know that they were that wise. The old Mark Twainism, remember? Mark Twain left home when he was 16, and he writes, When I was 16 years old and left home, I left realizing my dad was the dumbest man I had ever met. He came back at 21, and he says, I never realized how much my father had learned in those five years. <laughs> and so our parents know God knows what's best. Sometimes we wonder then, why doesn't God respond? He will because of who he is. Verse 11 says, teaches us these truths that God is our spiritual father. He knows his children. And as our father, he is sensitive to our needs. In verse 11 and 12, now suppose one of you Fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake, literally a stone instead of a fish, will he? If he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? He's sensitive to our needs. He's not bothered. The door is always open. And then in verse 13, if you then, being evil, here's those words, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The heavenly Father delights in answering our prayers. We move on to another parable in Luke 18, known as the parable of an unjust judge. First of all, there is not only the lesson of the fact that certainty is in prayer. You can come to God. But there's a lesson of an unjust judge that's going to teach us the persistency When we pray, we ought to be persistent. And it's found in Luke chapter 18. It begins in verse 1 and goes through verse 8. Now, he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. The setting of this parable is given by Luke when Jesus was instructing his disciples to pray and not lose heart in verse 1. Now, As you look at verse 1 of chapter 18, it starts out, now he was telling them. And it's a direct reference to the the setting, the context. When we speak and preach and read the Bible, you and I ought to always interpret in its context. Why is he teaching about the persistency of prayer, that they ought to pray and not lose heart? What does that mean? Well, if you go back with me for just a moment, back to chapter 17... And look in verse 20 for a moment with me. As his ministry is relatively closing now, drawing to a close, the disciples are becoming eager for the earthly kingdom. That he had been speaking about it to set up that kingdom. The Pharisees asked then when it will come. Now having been questioned by the Pharisees, verse 20, chapter 17, as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom, as you see here, is in your midst. Interesting. It's within you. You see, in Jesus' day, when he had been talking about the kingdom, 
They were thinking much the way you and I think when you hear the word kingdom, united kingdom, Great Britain. We think of the dirt, the, the, the realm, the imperial realm. You think of a king. You think of the subjects, those being ruled by a ruler in a realm, a kingdom, something established and visible for all to see. And the Bible teaches there's coming a day when Jesus will be here visibly. Stephen's going to be preaching now a series of those in the weeks to come, dealing with the millennial thousand-year kingdom on earth where Jesus and the heavenly city here on earth will rule and reign for a thousand years. The kingdom of God. There is a sense when you have a kingdom, you have a king with the authority and the power to rule. There's a parable actually in Luke 19 where Jesus says that there was a nobleman who went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom. He didn't go to get the dirt. Archelaus went to receive the signet ring and the authority to rule and reign. There is a sense also, if you're looking for the kingdom and its rule here on earth, you should be excited about it if you know the king. And there's a sense then in the Gospels where Jesus was among the religious leaders and the Jewish people that he talked about the kingdom and his kingship. And that's what he's referring here. His authority to rule and reign to put themselves under his rulership. Seek ye first the kingdom, the rulership of God in his life. We call him then what? Lord. And you have been, as it were, rescued from the realm of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians 1.13. The kingdom is not here. And I hear people praying or talking about the kingdom it's not here visible on earth. However, future kingdom dwellers, you and me, there's a sense in which his rulership is in our life, isn't it? And it ought to be, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the sovereign of our lives. The Pharisees, they rejected that. So then he speaks, notice, to his disciples. He talks to the religious leaders the king is in your presence. But then he said to his disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, the technical title of the messianic ruler, and you will not see it. And they will say, look here, look there. Do not go away and do not run after them. For just as the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things, and be rejected by this generation or Ganea or this people. He talks about that. And he speaks about the kingdom. Before the kingdom comes, Jesus teaches his disciples a truth. There's going to be suffering. And by the way, you've been hearing weeks of preaching on the suffering, we know it as a tribulation period, don't we? Seven years of the most horrific time the world will ever see. The latter three and a half of that, even for the Jews, is called Jacob's trouble, a time the world has never seen 
during that seven-year period. Just before the seven years start, praise God, the rapture of the church will take place. We will not be here. Amen? Covenant is signed, and that begins the seven-year period. At the end of the seven years, in a world state unimaginable, the Son of Man returns. And he sets up his thousand-year rule. It's coming. But Jesus says there's an interim time. From the time he was on earth and he would suffer and be rejected until he returns. There's going to be a period of time. And by the way, folks, it's now. It'll be a time of difficulties for those who know the Lord. It will be a tough time in which his followers, just like him, will experience persecution and suffering. And during the interim period, this time... Today, the tendency for us is to become discouraged or lose heart, give up during the delay. So Jesus, knowing all things and knowing that, did not want to just show principles on how to live as a disciple. He went further and showed his disciples that they have a resource that they can go to for strength. You can go to God in prayer during the interim. And so he speaks a parable then on the persistency of prayer. Notice with me then, beginning in verse 2, saying, In a certain city was a judge who did not fear God, did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, Give me my legal protection from my adversary, my opponent. For a while he was unwilling. But afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me continually, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. So as you read this, the unjust judge, who feared neither God nor cared about men, refused a widow's plea for justice. And by the way, it was his obligation. The people in Jesus' day, the leaders and others, were obligated to look out for widows. So he picked someone in society they knew should have been helped. Listen to what Simon Kistemacher writes on this. Widows in Israel, he writes, seem to have experienced great difficulty. The numerous protective laws indicate that oppression and hardship were their lot. God himself defends the cause of the widow, Deuteronomy 10:18, and places a curse upon the man who withholds justice from her, Deuteronomy 27:19. The widow took the place of her deceased husband and in court was considered equal to a man. For in Numbers 30, verse 9, we read, any vow or obligation taken by a widower will be binding on her. Anyone wishing to deprive the widow of her rights would have to face God the defender of widows, Psalm 68, verse 5. This judge says, no. So she keeps on persistently coming. Now, as we read this, it's not necessary to know what her adversary had done or what had oppressed her. Perhaps it was something to do with property that was unjustly taken. Whatever the circumstances may have been, she came for justice, and this judge was able to give it as well as his duty to give it. We just saw that in Deuteronomy's passages. Many of the widows would have, after that refusal, gone away and nursed their sorrows off to themselves. 
she keeps coming again and again. And it's her intention, evidently, from this parable to keep coming until her request is granted. The judge finally concludes that neither the fear of God nor concern for others would cause him to do justice, so he's tired of having her come. He would accede to her request. So as you look at this, it's a parable again of contrast. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, verse 7, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith, literally faithfulness on the earth? The message of this parable, its central focus as we talk about this parable, its lesson is that Jesus wanted his disciples to grasp from this parable simply the fact that if a widow can obtain justice by continually calling on an unrighteous judge who doesn't fear God or man, how much more should Christians be encouraged to persist in their cries to the judge of all the earth who does right? So, The parable emphasizes the character of a God who is not at all like the uncaring, unrighteous judge, but he's merciful, he's patient, he is eager to assist his people. And by the way, and deliverance, there's a second lesson, that deliverance from difficulties may not come immediately. You know that. You know that. You've lived there. Therefore, Faithfulness, verse 8. Will he find faithfulness is required. That kind of faithfulness is enabled and accompanied by prayer. We ought to pray. Because of its certainty, we ought to pray with persistency. Jesus continues, and he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two questions would arise, and that is, what's the basis of prayer? What's the ground on how we should approach God? And with that in mind, he's going to take us into another parable that's going to talk about and be found in this passage that deals with this Pharisee and this tax collector. And so I would like you to go with me to that parable as we look at this third one and our last in our series on the parables dealing with prayer. I would like you to see with me in verses 9 through 14 the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector with its truth that you and I not only should pray with certainty, confidence, Not only pray with persistency, but when we come to God, we ought to pray with the right attitude, an attitude of humility. It's not addressed to the disciples, but rather, he says in verse 9, to those who rested or trusted in themselves and were treating everyone else with contempt. And so, as we look here, he's going to speak and challenge the people on a right attitude. Do you see yourself? You ought to. You need to see yourself the way God sees us. The Bible talks about the mirror of God's Word in James. Did you look in the mirror this morning? Yeah, all of us did. We look in a mirror. Many of us looked in a mirror. I looked in the mirror at home. There in that bathroom, the whole wall is the mirror, okay? 
Before I came and walked to preach, I looked in the mirror. I just got a haircut here yesterday, and I grew up with very curly hair. Hard to believe, but I did, okay? And so when I get a haircut, the back has a tendency to stick up. It's bad enough having none, worse having the stuff in the back going doom out the back, all right? And so I'm looking in a mirror to make sure this is, how's it look? And so mirrors and me, we don't get along well together. I look in the mirror and I try to deny it, but I'm, I'm bald, okay? I mean, and that's obvious, you would think. I didn't appreciate being bald. Years ago, when I was going bald, I decided I'm going to grow this out. And so I grew this and combed it over. And I had hair, okay, until the wind blew. Or you're swimming in a pool and there's something fall right behind your head. It's my hair. All right. So I did the natural thing. We cut it off. Now I'm short, bald, and I can say inconceivable, and people understand. So, and my lot in life. But for a long time, I denied when I looked in the mirror, you're bald. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? As you look in the mirror, you're going to see one of two individuals. You will see someone perfectly content with self, or you're going to see someone quite different. As you look in this passage of Scripture, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, viewed others with contempt. Two men, very important, two men went up to the temple, nine o'clock hour in the morning perhaps, to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. When he says that, the crowd would have gone... There would have been a collected gasp. Jesus picks the two people of that day at the complete opposites of the social spectrum. You and I have this image of Pharisees when we read about them, that the Pharisees were probably the most evil people in the day. That's not the case. We've been tainted by, as it were, and and using them as illustrations of just wrong corruptness, We look at them, and 2,000 years haven't changed that. But in that day, the Pharisees, they're titled the separated ones, set about as their course just a couple hundred years before Jesus came. Their purpose was to be the upholders of the law when all the influence of culture, the Hellenistic culture, was corrupting the people. They wanted to bring a revival back and have the people build their lives on the Word of God and bring the Word of God to bear at every situation in life. They were orthodox. They were militant in that orthodoxy. So much so that they created traditions based on the Scriptures for every situation of life. And they were seen as the religious practitioners, the orthodox of the day. And Jesus said, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
There were some good Pharisees, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, and others. They weren't all evil men. So our image has been a little painted black that way. The problem is, is that when they did keep the law, like this man did, well, there's another Jew of the time, a tax collector, a publican. He worked for the republic. He worked for the imperial government of Rome. And what he did is he extorted taxes, often beyond what he should have done. He would pay what he had contracted to do to Rome, keep the excess for self and those he hired. And so he was known as an extortioner. They gave him the title of traitor in his country, rotten man at heart, usually only concerned with self, his interest being financial. No religious interest usually, not in the things of God. Personally, as I begin to hear Jesus speaking here, on two men went up to the temple, one to pray, the one being a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. My money's riding on the Pharisee. But listen to what Jesus says in verses 11 and 12. For he will say, the Pharisee stood, this man who is, as we said, perfectly content with self, perfectly content within himself. As you read here, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, by himself, about himself. He's self-centered. He's also self-righteous. His prayer begins, God, as if, God, you should be pleased. I'm entering your presence. In his approach to God, he's self-righteous. In the nature of his prayer, he is self-righteous, for he says, I thank you that I am not like other people. It's not a prayer for confession, no petitioning. Rather, since he believes he's done no wrong, he rejoices over himself, his self-righteousness. Notice his attitude toward others. I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He makes comparisons with the religious standards of the day. I fast twice a week. He's self-confident. The Jew in his day fasted one day a year on the Day of Atonement was their obligation. I give tithes of all that I get. The Jew was to tithe of the crops. He tithes everything. He is completely self-reliant. The other, I mean self-confident, the other is completely self-reliant. For I read then in verse 13, but the tax collector. I want you to notice his personal sinfulness in verse 13. Standing some distance away, he's conscious of his guilt. In this humble spirit, he knows he's unworthy. He won't even come close, and he realizes that he is the object of scorn and derision of men, so he stands off. Standing some distance away, was uneven willing to lift up his eyes to heaven. He won't lift his eyes with his broken spirit, conscious, and his conscience is bothering him because 
as he thinks about other people know here that I've swindled them. And he's beating his breast, smote his breast. And he's doing this over and over and over. It's not my actions. It's in here, and that's what it means to smite your breast. It's a symbol that the problem, the source of my problem, it's in here, and I can't get to it. And that's what he's doing. The source of all my problem is there. It's my heart. So he's conscious God, he says, as he's praying that, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. No excuses. No explanations, no comparisons. Just literally, let thine anger be removed from me. In the language, you hear the word propitiation, sometimes used in Scripture. The word to propitiate means to take the anger off, the wrath of God. Let your anger be removed from me. It's the same as David prayed in Psalm 51.1. He's actually quoting that. Be merciful to me. Then he says, the sinner. He recognizes his condition. He has nowhere to turn but to God. He owes people that he's cheated. And by the way, he's not only to pay them back, he's to pay them two-tenths more. He can't do it. He doesn't even remember all that he's cheated. But he knows the terribleness of his soul and his anguish. The sinner. There's the key. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. It's a beautiful passage that talks about and shows us our need that you and I can be self-centered in our life and righteous in our eyes. And when you look in the mirror, I have hair. I'm white before God in purity. And yet the Lord says, when I first looked at you, Dave, all your works of righteousnesses are as what? Filthy rags. Band-aids, the clothes that were wrapped, perhaps around the leper, putrefied. The sinner, if Adam and Eve would have lived and had one child, not Cain and Abel, but Dave Burgraff, Jesus would have come and died that death for me. Not the whole world. I sent him to the cross. And with that attitude, you and I have to come before God and realize, Lord, save me, the sinner. And what he does then is we cannot pay back. We cannot do right works. He gives us then the gift of eternal life in his grace and his mercy. We become his children. Two kinds of people in the world. There are sinners and there are saved sinners. And as a saved sinner, when I pray, I ought to come before God in humility Not this prayer, but this pattern. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You are holy, God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. 
talking about then my need of him. Give me this day my very substance and sustenance for existence, the daily bread, and forgive me of my trespasses. I come before him recognizing I've done it again. I'm dependent on him again. And aren't you glad he never gets tired of us confessing our sins and coming before him that way day in and day out? It is wonderful to be a child of God. He delights in us praying to him, and he delights to answer our prayers. When we look in the mirror and we see ourselves the way we ought to in humility, Lord, here I am again dependent on you. And he says, welcome into my presence. Great God, tremendous privilege we have to serve and live for him. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that you teach us that we ought to pray with certainty, confidence. And we ought to pray with persistency. You never get tired. You never weary. Nothing bothers you. We ought to pray without ceasing because you want to hear us express our every need to you. And we ought to pray in humility. Lord, let us never have an attitude as we drive the streets, walk the malls, even in this busy season of the year now when we'll be in stores more than we want to be. But as we look around at the crowds, help us to be, first of all, heart-struck at their need and do something about it. But also, Lord, as we look about, not to click our tongues and think, boy, I'm glad I'm not like that. We were like that. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you, Lord, that you forgive us. Be near us. Have mercy on us, your children. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.